Good job. Wow, we've got some beautiful and handsome children in our church, don't we? Incredible. Great job. All children are dismissed for uh, Children's Church. So if you're among the congregation this morning, if you would just transition out with the group and um, they'll set you up. So good to have you this morning. We've, we have several things planned for everybody. I'm Pastor Joey, and it's my privilege just to preside over the services today here at Stone Seal Community Church. And we've got a little saying that you can only be a stranger once. And so once you're here one time, we consider you a part of our extended family, and we do welcome you uh, on this Christmas um, weekend and upcoming Christmas weekend next week. Uh, it's Christmas Day, so we just thank you for being with us today. Uh, in just a few moments, I'll be sharing with you out of the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14. And it's going to be about, well, really, it's the shortest and most succinct um, Christmas verse in the Bible. In fact, it's Christmas in, in a single verse. And so we'll be looking at that momentarily. Before we get there, though, we have some very special things. Uh, we're going to do a, a baby dedication in just a few moments. And um, I'm going to go ahead and ask if the Gaff family would make their way to the platform. And if you um, are planning on being a part of that dedication with this family, you would come up also. Very special, special family. And so uh, not only is Riker going to be dedicated today, but Liam in a few moments will be baptized. And so we're going to have baptism at the end of the service today. There's like six different people that will be baptized, six or seven people that will be baptized today. And Liam is among them. Uh, and so we've got a very special day planned for each and every one of you. Uh, this is such a special time. And let me go ahead and grab the microphone real quick. And so, you know, it's uh, one of the questions um, that I heard in a podcast this week. Uh, one of the little two or three-year-olds wanted to know why it took God so long to send Jesus into the world. You know, why did it take so many years? Well, the Bible talks about how uh, finally in Galatians 4.4, the fullness of time came when everything was just right. And the timing was perfect. And because the world was desperate and so unstable in so many ways. And, and God had developed and brought people groups along. And finally the world was ready for the baby Jesus. And it was incredible when he came, and we'll be talking about that. Well, sometimes we look at our own individual lives and we think, why did God wait so long to bring this little guy along? There he is. I mean, it, I mean, this is a handsome dude. He's a handsome dude. And you gotta love the cheeks on that guy. And uh, I, I think that's good for at least a couple pounds right there. So praise God for that. And, you know, I was thinking about what a, a fitting weekend to do a baby dedication when we're talking about Jesus and the Word becoming flesh. And uh, you're such a good dude. Uh, and how that, why did he come as a baby? And I think one of the reasons is, I mean, we're not afraid of babies. We love babies. I mean, can, would any of you, if you saw him uh, on a dark night on a street somewhere, if you saw this little guy pop up, would you be afraid of him? I don't think you would. You would be like, wow, where'd he come from? What a handsome guy, right? And not only that, but we can't be afraid of babies. And I think another reason God came as a baby and Jesus came as a baby was 
he knew we would have to hold him close. And Gory Gaither said that yesterday. I thought that was a really good insight that, that he came as a baby because he knew we would have to hold him close. And so I think that on this baby dedication Sunday, not only are you gonna be holding Riker close um, all these years, and, and you've already held Liam close, but you're gonna be holding Riker close all these years. And in the, in the beauty of that moment, it's not just a Riker that you hold, it's the presence of God in the form of a baby. And I know you have words of blessing that you'd like to read over him, and so I just invite you, Matt, if you would, just to share those words of blessing to us. So, hello? Okay. <clears throat> As a uh, second miracle sent from God, we, are, we ask a blessing upon this child. In Psalm we read, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. Psalms 127.3. God does not give us more than our cup can handle, and with a loving family standing behind Riker, ready to guide and direct. Proverbs say, says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he grows older, he will not abandon it. We cannot wait to see what great things God has in store for you. We will, we will rejoice with you as you grow older and wiser in the body of Christ. We cannot wait for you, as John says, I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. Our hope and prayer is that like your older brother, you will be a shining example of God's love. We are reminded that we should look to you as an example of how we need to come before the Father. Paul says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Riker, you are a blessing and a gift. We pray you will grow and learn and flourish in his word. I so appreciate you, sir, and uh, just your, your faith, your walking with the Lord. And from the moment um, you met with me in my office to have the conversation just about how God had just spoken into your life in this way, I've just known God's got something special for this guy. And uh, it's a privilege, really, to dedicate him to the Lord. And I see great value in associating children from a young age with the faith community. And even though later in his life, he will personally appropriate, personally, what we talk about here today, um, you have, rather than adopt a wait-and-see attitude toward Riker and Liam, you have intentionally said, no, 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 we're going to raise them as Christian. We're going to raise them as Christ followers from an early age. And that's some admirable decision to make. And, uh, and, and my prayer is that God will bless you in this. And if it is your intent to raise your family to honor and love God, would you just please respond by saying, we will. And if it's your intent to pray for this family and support them and uh, walk with them through life and um, cheer for this guy and encourage him all of his days, if that's your intent, would you, congregation, please say, we will. Riker, I don't know about you, man, but that sounds like an encouraging cheer team right there. So, you going to come over and let me hold you for a minute? All right. It's going so good. You know what? This, thing, this guy is full of lead. <laughs> I think you can just put lead in both legs and arms, and that's about what you'd have right here. We love you, buddy. Let's pray, okay? Father, thank you so much for this day, and thank you so much for Riker. And yeah, sometimes we wonder what, uh, 
of why you wait so long sometimes to send us these special gifts. But man, we're so glad the time is right. And Riker's here. And we're thankful. He's made in the image of God. He's loved by his parents, adored by his brother, supported by his church, and made in your image and shines so bright, so bright. And so now we dedicate him in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. We set him apart for the work and sacred calling that you have for him. And whatever that is, whatever his vocation is, whatever his walk in life is, while we're going to enjoy every day between uh, then and that moment and now, we're going to take life one day at a time and just enjoy it as a little boy growing up and, and then uh, on up into his teen years and his adult years. We're just going to enjoy every moment. And we just pray, God, that you'll visit him in these moments and he'll keep shining bright. And your hand is upon him and we pray that you would guide him and bless his family. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. All right, brother. He did good. Brush up on those technical skills, okay? You're going to be probably back here in the booth with your daddy. So Liam's already got his podcast ready to go. You guys are going to be on the Internet someday, and you're going to hear Liam Guy from Ligonier. Here he is with the podcast. So we're looking forward to it, guys. We love you all. Let's give him a hand. Yeah. Praise God. So we're just going to continue identifying people this morning with the faith community right here, our local church. And uh, we'll do that, uh, some more in that regard in just a few moments with baptism. Uh, but this morning, I want to talk to you just for a few moments out of John chapter 1, um, verse 14. Uh, this is what it says, if you could pull it up on the screen for me. In the beginning was the word... And the word was with God, and the word was God. And that's John chapter 1, uh, verse 1. And that kind of sets it up for us. And then we see in verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And if you would go to slide number 5 for me. Eugene Peterson in the message renders these words, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one of a kind glory like father, like son, generous, inside and out, true from start to finish. And so this verse is the single greatest sentence ever written in the history of human language and one of the deepest theological statements that you can make. The word, or we could read Jesus, God became flesh. That's a powerful thing. And he didn't just become flesh for just a moment. He became flesh, and go to the previous slide, and he dwells among us, or he dwelt among us, he tabernacled among us for 30-some years. So it wasn't as if he did the incarnational thing, oh, okay, I did that, now I'm back to heaven. No, no, he journeyed with us and lived with us and dwelt with us. In fact, the word literally is he tabernacled among us for 30-some-odd years, which is incredible, and it's an incredible statement about uh, how he authenticates our humanity 
and, and what it means to be human. One of the greatest theological statements that we read in the Bible. The Word became flesh. And here's what we do, though. We like to complicate things. The Word became flesh, but then the theologians, pastors, the academics, the philosophers turned it back into words again. That's what we do, isn't it? God became flesh so we could see invisible, multi-sensory world in a multi-sensory way. We could hear him, we could touch him, we can feel him, um, and see him, and hear him, and all those things. And we experience God, and then God just gives us this beautiful picture, and then sometimes we complicate it, and we turn it back into words again. Well, what John does here, and we need to just take it slowly, phrase by phrase and word by word to really understand what's being uh, communicated. And so if we look at this, the word became flesh. So the focus, focus is on the word. Now I've got a question. Why does John call Jesus the word? And the Greek term is logos, okay? It's L-O-G-O-S, and it's pronounced logos. Some people pronounce it logos, Okay. So long as the O's sound the same, I've heard either pronunciation for this very uh, weighted word, a very important word to define and understand. And so John says, the lagos became flesh. The word became flesh. And so why does John call Jesus the word? Well, he does it for a couple of reasons. The word lagos was a loaded term when John wrote this, and it means or it can be translated the reason or logic for life. Jesus is the reason, the logos, the logic for life. And so uh, when the philosopher in John's, times, the, in John's time, the philosophers were trying to find the logos of something, it meant they were trying to find the reason or the logic for its being. What is its rationale? Um, what is its purpose? What is the reason for being? And so if you find some, some strange object in your garage or in your house and you don't know what it's for, and if you're like us, this happens on a routine basis, you find something, you don't know what it goes to, uh, all right? And so you, I have learned not to just throw it in the trash. I've learned just to set it aside because chances are later I'll figure out what it's logos is, what its logic is, what its rationale is, what its purpose is. And so uh, until you know that, you might find something like that in your garage or your house, and you think, well, man, this is useless to me. It's a meaningless object. I really don't know what this is for. And if you use something that you don't honor its logos or its logos, all right, if you don't honor its logos, the reason for its existence, if you don't honor the design that it was made um, to fulfill what the designer put into it, if you don't honor it, it can't reach its potential. So you have to honor the logos of what it is. And so this happens all the time, like I said, at our house. And we've learned just to set things aside and maybe later we'll discover the, the logos for its, uh, for its reason for existence. Here's the deal. In the first century world, the first century thinkers, listen closely to me, the first century world context, the thinkers and the philosophers and the academics of the first century world, when they thought about Lagos, 
just like we think about, uh, we like to know the purpose of things, they wanted to know the purpose of life. And if they could figure out the logos, the reason, the logic, the purpose, the design for life, then we can live a happy and fulfilled life. This is what they were thinking. If they could figure out what the logos of life was, the purpose of life, then they could be happy and fulfilled. Here's what John is doing in John chapter 1. He's saying to everybody who will read his gospel, he is saying that I have found the logos, the reason, the rationale, the logic behind all of life. I have found it. That when this world got created, there was someone in mind. That when God does what he does in Genesis 1-1, there was something in mind. And the way John words Genesis, uh, John 1-1 echoes back to that. And, and John is saying, I know the reason for the existence of the whole universe. It's not some impersonal logic. It's not some some rationale or reason that's impersonal, that's embodied from a person or personality. He says, I know the logos of life, and it's not an impersonal force or abstraction. It is a living person. It's a living person. And not only does he say this, and this is radical in his time, it's earth-shattering for someone to assert that the logic of all of life is actually a person or personality. And not only is this a person or personality, but this logos, this, this um, reason for our existence has become flesh as well. So it's just not a person. It's a person who has become a human being. And that sent the philosophical world into earthquakes and tremors. Because no one had ever had the audacity to assert that this reason for living is, some, is a personal being that created all of this. And not only that, but this personal being has chosen to interject himself into our humanity. It's unheard of, the audacity of an apostle to say such things in a world of in the marketplace of first century ideas. And so John writes it at the headline, at the top of this gospel. The logos, the reason for living, is not some impersonal force or abstraction. It is a living person. And the logos is not an it. It's, a, it's, a, it's not an impersonal explanation, but it is a he, a personal and ultimate explanation of all things. He is the ultimate explanation for life and living. He is our reason. And when we serve him and when we love him and when we find out what he's built us for, we can comply with what he is, how he has made us. And when we submit ourselves to him, we find out truly who we are as, as people, as human beings ourselves. Eventually, John understands something. Eventually, life gets to these questions. What is my reason for doing all this? What is my reason for life? What is my whole life about? Why am I getting up in the morning? What is the reason I'm going to my job? What's the reason I'm getting married? What's the reason am I having children? What's the reason behind all that I do in life? And at the end of life, will my, will my life have mattered? 
John understands you and I are human beings and we're going to eventually get to that place in our life and our spiritual journey. And he says, when you get there, you're going to want to know that the logos is not some impersonal force that somehow accidentally or naturalistic created, naturalistically created all of this. No, no, no. You have been intentionally designed by an intelligent designer who is none other than the God of the Bible, who has chosen to reveal himself in the incarnational truth of Jesus, who came into a, a virgin's womb, was conceived by the Spirit, out the birth canal, and when he came out of the birth canal and born into this world, he cried and messed his diaper and cooed with the all the other babies he was just that much of a man fully man the bible says but fully god he set aside the independent exercise of his deific attributes he stayed god he was fully god and yet he fully embraces and takes on humanity fully god and fully man the word john says he is the Lagos, the reason, the rationale for our existence. The Word became flesh. And I would say the incarnational experience of Jesus, he preexisted before he ever became, uh, he took on uh, humanity or before humanity was added to his deity. Um, he preexisted in a form as the uh, person in the Godhead, that triunity of God, the God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, he's always existed. He was there at creation. Creation happens because of him and through him. He sustains it. But when he was incarnated, it didn't just happen at Bethlehem in Judea in about 6 B.C. No, no, he was incarnated nine months before when he was conceived in the womb of Mary. His incarnation started right there as a human being. His deity was perfectly veiled in human flesh. And Charles Wesley, the hymn writer, writes it so well. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, he says. If he wasn't veiled in flesh, we couldn't look at him. We couldn't take him in. We would be afraid of him. We wouldn't even attempt to hold him close. But because he's veiled in flesh, we can take him in. God is veiled in such a way that we can take him in fully. You know, it's amazing to me that Jesus didn't sparkle or glitter or glow. And I know that's what we have in our nativity scenes this time of year. Uh, but he didn't sparkle and glitter and glow. In fact, uh, everything about Jesus and the Christmas story it's so, it's so non-sparkle, okay? It's just so, it's so average and so normal. Once you get outside of the angelic appearances and the wise men, once you get outside of those initial uh, encounters of the miraculous, okay? Jesus' life, in fact, his, his siblings didn't even know and saw him as God um, because he was, the, he was veiled in flesh, you see. And everything about his story, uh, Jesus was born in a little village, not a big metropolitan area like, like uh, Fort Wayne or Indianapolis. Um, he was born to middle-class parents, uh, or he wasn't born to middle-class parents, he was born to poor parents. Um, he wasn't born in a comfortable home, he was born in a stable cave, in a feed trough, a manger. He, he wasn't 
He wasn't born into a family that was a pillar in the community. He was born to an unwed pregnant teenager who undoubtedly bore a stigma uh, related to that for the rest of her life. Jesus didn't sparkle. He didn't glow. He didn't shine like uh, in a way that let everybody uh, make it, that would make everybody think that he was something other than just who he, who he says he was. And I think that's one of the messages of Christmas is that it's so easy for us to despise small things. It's so easy for us to despise, to despise insignificant towns or insignificant, what we may think is insignificant people or insignificant assignments. It's so easy for us to be blinded by the sparkle and the glitter that we're surrounded by, that we lose a vision of the beauty of what God is doing in the simple, ordinary life places we call mangers and stables. And understand that the logos, the logic behind all things, that God is working his plan. You know, uh, Tim Keller does a sermon, and uh, he, he asks the question in the sermon, is it possible to live in the brilliance and not be blinded by it? Is it possible to live in and be surrounded by the brilliant and not be blinded by it. See, we're blinded by the sparkle and the glitter of Christmas. And we're blinded by the designer mansions and the exotic properties and, and European vehicles and academic honors and corporate positions and Paris fashions and country club prestige and media recognition and social status and and, and we're, we're we're enamored by these things and Keller wants to know can we live in the brilliance and not be blinded by it and the message of Christmas is that that Christmas speaks to to that particular uh, point in our life, that there's a reality that's bigger than this world, that God is unfolding a plan, and it's bigger, and it's greater, and it's the ultimate plan of the ages. It's the logos. It's the reason for existence, and, it, and this reason for existence is a person, and this person has stepped into our life, into our manger stables to, to tell us a message and to give us a message. The Word, the text says on the screen, the Word became flesh. When you, when you touched Jesus, you felt him. When you, when you touched him, your hand didn't pass through him. He wasn't some hologramic image uh, that was kind of there and kind of not there. No, no, when, he, when his sandaled foot uh, came down in the sand, it left a footprint. And the way John says this, the word became flesh. It, it's a crude um, a, a crude, rough, strong way of saying, of referring that Jesus was fully human. He could have said the word became man or the word became a, came to us in human form or the word became a body. Instead, John says, the word became flesh. And when John says it that way, you can be sure that someone in the first century world was challenging the full humanity of Jesus. And John is like, you know what? I am not leaving any room for such notions and such shenanigans that you would suggest that Jesus was not fully man because I saw him. 
I heard him. I experienced him. He became a human being without ceasing to be who he was. He was the God-man. He came to us. He wasn't just beamed down from heaven. He came to us through, a, through Mary's womb. And, and, and he floated in amniotic, the amniotic bubble of her uterus, and he developed limbs, slide number 10. He developed limbs and a heart and brain and fingernails and earlobes and eyelashes. He was squeezed and pushed and grunted into this world. And like I said, he coughed and sneezed and cried. He was the God-man. And John is about 80 or 90 years of age by the time he writes this in his gospel. And he's saying, I saw it, even though it was 50 years ago. I saw it. I've written it down. I experienced it. He is fully God and fully man. And you will not talk me out of it. You will not gaslight me into believing something other than that. I know what I'm talking about. He is the reason, the logic behind all things. In fact, John says, he made his dwelling among us. His dwelling was made among us. He tabernacled among us. He gave us plenty of time to take him in. John says, there we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. And I like how he says, we have seen his glory, the personal plural pronoun. John goes now from a description to a personal testimony, to personal observation. We have seen his glory. I'm among those. I saw him. And I know that he was fully human. And the things he said and did in the resurrection, he was fully God, just as he said he was. John says he was full of grace and truth. They saw in him virtues that had never been combined. Uh, You have tenderness without any weakness in in the God-man. You have strength without any heavy-handedness. You have humility without timidity. Um, You have firm, unbending, unyielding convictions, and yet utter approachability, passion without prejudice, power without insensitivity. He was full of grace and truth. You know, um, I went to a a doctor recently, and it's a, a deal where I had to find a new doctor how many of you, uh, when you have to find a new doctor, don't you go online and find the picture to see who you're going to be going to see? Huh? Anybody else do that too? I looked at the picture and I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But uh, I went ahead and braved it, kept the appointment, and, and went to see my new doctor or someone that could potentially become my new doctor. And uh, one of the first things I noticed about him was that he was full of grace and truth. And I like that. Uh, not only was he full of grace and truth, but uh, he said, you know, we don't force people to be vaccinated here. If you don't want to be vaccinated, whatever, we're not going to force that. We give you grace there to make your decision, your own health care decision in that regard. So he's full of grace. And then he also told me the truth. He said, you know what? How old are you, Mr. Nelson? I told him. He said, you are long overdue for a colonoscopy. That's what he told me, the truth. Now, when that time comes, the whole church is going to be fasting and praying, all right, to get me through that. 
and you just pray for me. Young people, pray for me. You don't have to worry about it now. Just pray for me, okay? Everybody pray for me when that time comes, all right? When I go see a doctor like that, so I have learned, usually they want to, and it's amazing what new questions they're going to ask you at the doctor's office. They're going to ask you your health history. They're going to ask you what medicines you're on, uh, what previous illnesses that you have that you've been diagnosed with. Um, they're going to ask your sexual history. Okay, believe me, it all comes out. The doctor wants to know who he's dealing with, what he's dealing with, and, and, and the circumstances of your life. So they ask you all those personal questions. And usually they want to ask and they want to know what I do. Well, what do you do for work? Well, I have learned... Uh, so I can be gracious and truthful in all things. I, I want to be gracious and truthful. I think we all should strive to be gracious and truthful. But I have learned in these situations, uh, if I tell somebody what I do, sometimes they start acting weird after I tell them. Okay? If I tell them, yeah, I pastor a church, well, they get weird on me, Rusty. They get weird on me. And uh, they start acting weird, talking weird. I just get the feeling that, you know, now they, the, I'm, I'm battling a stereotype. And the last thing I wanted was for me to tell my doctor I'm a pastor. And then when, when it comes time to the reflex test, he, instead of a little hammer, he gets a sledgehammer and says, boom. That's what I think of pastors. Okay, so I've learned to be a little shy about that. Not about Jesus, just about the vocation and the stereotypes that come with that. And so sometimes people may ask me that and I may say well I'm self-employed in a sense I'm self-employed and they'll say oh okay whatever and then they'll move on but he said no no he said I want to know what you do I said well okay <laughs> you asked for it here we go and I still had my clothes on and everything so don't worry okay it was all good alright had to sit on the little paper crackly thing I hate sitting on that it just makes you feel so sterilized and it just, it's just horrible but uh, so I'm, you know, I have to sit on the crackly paper thing. Uh, but he said, what do you do? I said, well, I pastor a church. He said, really? Okay. And he, re he asked me some more routine questions, just routine questions. And I'm like, well, I'm not sure where I stand with this guy. It, what's he going to do when he, when he does his test? I mean, is he going to rough me up now or he knows what I do or what? So I'm still not sure. I tried to feel him out a little bit more. Couldn't quite get a read. We get to the end of the appointment. He says, uh, Joey, yep. He says, I have a policy. At the end of all my appointments, I like to pray with my patients. Would you mind if I prayed for you? I'm thinking, would I mind? Let's just have a prayer meeting right here, right now, man. I, I appreciate when people tell me they're praying for me. You bet. Pray for me. And so he prayed for me after diagnosing things and telling me what I needed to do and with grace and truth. He prayed for me, and, and, and that's not the end of it. By the time he gets to the end of that thing, he does something I've heard many, many times, and you've even done it too. He said, in Jesus' name, amen. Jesus' name. I'm not just talking, he's not just a, a liberal philosopher out here doing religion. He's somebody that understands there's a reason behind everything. There's a, a, a logos behind life. And if I'm practicing medicine, I honor the reason. He is my explanation. 
He is my reason. Why? Because he shows up, and he showed up, and he came into the manger, and he was fully God, he was fully man, and not only did he come with a balance like this, I mean, if he would have been gracious, he would have just been shallow and sentimental and told everybody that he loved them, regardless of how they lived or what they believed. If he was just all grace and no truth, that's how he would have come across. If he was all truth and no grace, he would have been a bully, and he would have badgered people and beat people with the Bible. He didn't do it that way. John says, I spent three years with him. I heard him. I touched him. I saw him. I, I saw him as a human being. He, when he stepped, he made a footprint. I know he's fully God. And he's not just fully God. He's fully man. And he holds that in grace and truth, in the perfect balance. Christmas in a single verse. The incarnation does so much. Uh, it affirms the value of human existence. We're valuable to God. Jesus never despised the virgin's womb. He affirms our humanity. It was home to him, and he came as one of us, and he loves us, and he forever links himself to our humanity. You think now that he's a man, and by the way, he didn't just revert back to some previous pre-incarnate existence. No, no. He became the God-man forever. There was no going back to a previous state of pre-incarnate glory. He, was, he will always and forever be linked to our humanity and to our, our humanness. Church, did you hear what I said? Do you understand and comprehend? Do, do you understand why sometimes it's hard to preach on this passage without, with a clear eye? Because I recognize there is no reversing what he did at Christmas. No reversing. He will forever be the God-man. And that says something about our humanity and our flesh. It means that our bodies are valuable. And the incarnation makes life valuable again. And if we adopt a secular worldview where we are espousing the position that the world is primarily an impersonal place, that, they have, that it has an impersonal creationary beginning, that if we espouse a secular worldview that, 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 that primarily the logos of the universe and of the cosmos and of our existence, if that is an impersonal force, then, ev- then primarily what we will do inevitably, we will start to mistreat persons in this world because they're not made in the image of God. Some impersonal force created them or accidentally spurned them out. And John is putting before us, church, an incredible proposal, an incredible argument that this world is not, did not have its origins and its beginnings in some blind impersonal uh, uh, source. It, it has come to us in a person with personality, and this person has spoken in the person of Jesus, and he has forever linked himself to our humanity, to our fleshness, to, uh, fleshiness, to our to our manhood, to our womanhood, to our personhood. And if a person stands behind all that we see and this person became flesh, then the flesh is holy. It's important. It's something worth saving. 
Christians have a more hopeful understanding of reality than the secular worldview people, proponents of the world have. You are, you are filled with a message of hope because of Christmas. And so I would just say to you, don't get stuck in the impersonal world of a secular worldview. Those who want to take your personhood, who want you to get rid of the self and, and, and get rid and blot out the gender distinctions. Listen, church, you are a you. You're a gendered person in God's image. And be careful when anyone asserts that a human is a non-person. Slide number nine. They tried to do that. They tried to do that in history. Slide number nine, if you would, for me. They tried to do that to say people were non-persons. On the left, they tried to say African-Americans were non-persons, and that's what they did. They tried to say that Jewish people were non-persons, and that's what they did in the Holocaust. And the secular worldview with, with people who are huge proponents of it today, and they're mixed and mingled all around the culture, will look at a baby and say, it's a non-person. Be careful. Not only are you striking at the dignity and the image of God, you are saying that what Jesus came as and what he died for is no longer important or valuable or sacred. And so what we will often hear today, non-person, non-person, non-person. Because we have this idea of an impersonal beginning that John argues, no, it is a personal beginning. The logos of life, the explanation of life, it was a personal being that created. And if that is the case, this is sacred. These lives were sacred. They were holy. They were set apart fully human, that Christ came and loved them and died for them and all of us. A lot of times we will hear abortion uh, is health care. Well, abortion is not health care because abortion is not medicine because pregnancy is not a disease. It's not a disease. And so if abortion is health care, then by the same token, slavery is job creation. Come on, church. We know better than this. We know better than this. Don't buy it. Don't align with it. Stay true to the sanctity of the body and the value of flesh. Don't subscribe to the surgical amputations and the carving up of the body that people are espousing that we do today. So there are several reasons why Jesus became flesh. Several reasons. We could talk more on these things. But I want to go to, I think, one of the primary reasons. And if all of our baptism candidates would go get ready, and, and if your children being baptized, uh, then your parents can go with you as well to help get ready for this. Jesus came, several reasons why Jesus became flesh. And, uh, you know, to show us what human beings really are. Uh, to reveal more about who God is and what he's like, to restrain and destroy the evil one, uh, to deliver a fallen creation from the curse, uh, even to lead Israel as a nation to her true calling, to reign and rule over the earth. These are all reasons why, reasons why Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. Perhaps the greatest reason that Jesus became flesh 
was to say, I love you in a way that we wouldn't miss it. Real quickly, Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, he loved to tell stories, and it's a good thing because if you try to read his book, it's like trying to walk in cement. Don't do it. But he did tell a few stories, and one of the stories he's known for, he says, slide number eight, imagine that there's a king that loved a humble maiden. Slide number eight, if you would, for me. She, she had no pedigree. She had no education. This king loved this humble maiden. She had no standing in the court. She dressed in rags. She led the life of a peasant. But for some reasons, reasons no one really could find out, the king fell in love with this girl, and he couldn't stop loving her. How could he show this girl his love to this maiden, this, uh, this chaste maiden that he had been smitten with? One solution, says Kierkegaard, was that uh, he could show her his power. Um, his advisors told him to simply command that she be his queen. Just go tell her you're going to be the queen and you have all this power and she can't deny your request. He could command her to, his, to the palace. He could shower her with gifts. He could have her crowned as queen. And, and, and somehow, though, he knew in his heart he couldn't command her to love him in, his, in her heart. But he said, I don't want a cringing subject. Power can't command love. And so he thought, well, maybe I'll, his advisor said, well, won't we, won't we just overlook their differences? Dress her as a queen and pretend she's always been royalty. But then how would he know that she truly loved him? And what if she really didn't want to be his queen? And how would she know if, if he would love her even if she remained a humble peasant girl? And would she live with him in, in true love, or would she have fear, and would she have a private grief for the life that she had left behind? Would she be happy by his side? So he knew he couldn't, he couldn't do it that way either. And so a third possible solution, some of the advisors told him, maybe you just need to give up this love and give your heart to a more worthy woman. But he said he couldn't stop thinking about her. His heart was fixed on this chaste, captivating peasant lady. Every alternative came to nothing, and there was only one way that love could work right between them, says Kierkegaard. The king, convinced that he could not elevate the maiden without crushing her freedom, he resolved to descend to her. One day, the king rises up, he left his throne, he removed his crown, he relinquished his scepter, he laid aside his royal robes, and he dressed in rags. And with rags flowing in the, fluttering loose in the wind about him, he knocks on her door. And so begins the romance of the ages. It wasn't a disguise. The king took on a totally new identity. He had renounced his throne to declare his love to win hers. And what Kierkegaard expressed in parable form, the apostle Paul expressed in words in Philippians 2, and he says, who being in the, in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. If Jesus is God, then he's the rightful owner of all that we are. He made us. Our bodies are not our own. They belong to him. He's, he's given us our talents. He's given us our resources. He's given us our family. We are his. He is the rightful creator and owner and logos. And because he is God, 
He has set it up such that we can come to him and we can receive him. History is filled with men who would be God, but only one God who would be a man, and that is Christ Jesus. Christmas, in a single verse, he set aside his robes and said, okay, so you wouldn't miss it. I love you. And so you wouldn't miss it. Here I am forever, the God-man. We want to transition to a time of baptism. And I'm just going to invite our, um, our lid lifting team. We have a lid lifting team. If you guys can come up, our lid lifting team. Uh, this is awesome. Appreciate it, guys. Let's, uh, let's move the table. Yep, that'll make it a lot easier. Thank you, boys. Appreciate it. All right, guys. One, two, three. Hey, we got it. Good job. That's an awesome lid lifting team. Good job, guys. Baptisms are such special times, and we're just so glad that you've come today. Uh, we've got six candidates that will be baptized today of all ages, and they, uh, each of them uh, will be sharing uh, who they are, their names, and a brief word of testimony, and that's awesome. And then uh, after everybody's done sharing their testimony, well, then we'll, uh, we'll proceed to do the baptisms. Uh, one of the things we want to do is we wanted to create a multi-sensory experience for everybody. And so uh, not only are they feeling the water, uh, but they're going to be tasting communion in the hallway with their families in just a moment after they're baptized. Uh, they're going to be hearing the words, the prayer, uh, and the words that are spoken over them. Uh, they're going to be, like I said, tasting communion. So it's a multi-sensory. In all, in all ways, we want them to remember what happens here today. And so um, we're going to just invite them to come and share uh, at this time. I think Debbie's going to kind of cue them up uh, in just a moment. Debbie will cue them up, and we'll begin this process. And then if you've been invited as well or been contacted about coming up with a candidate, um, just feel free to do that uh, when they come up on the stage then to share. Okay, good morning, everyone. We are glad that you're here celebrating with us today. 
And I just want to welcome all the family and friends that are here celebrating those who are getting baptized. Again, just welcome. We're glad you're here. They're all going to come out and tell us their testimonies by telling us their names. The kiddos, I think, are going to tell us their age. And then they will also share a little bit about why they want to be baptized today. All right, so I'm just going to give that over to you. My name is Lucas. I'm 10 years old, and I'm going to be baptized to grow more in Christ. Yes, praise the Lord for Lucas. All right, so Lucas will go back, and then we'll have Cooper come and share his testimony. My name is Cooper. I'm 9 years old, and um, I want to get baptized because I want to be a disciple of Jesus. My name is Liam, and I want to be ba My age is ten, and I want to be baptized because I want to be closer to God. Praise the Lord! Praise the Lord! My name is Ellie, and my my I'm t I'm ten, and I want to be baptized because so people know I'm that I'm a Christian. My name is Jody Messer, and um, I don't be baptized just because I've recommitted my life and just to show that um, that's a change in my life. Yeah. He transforms us, doesn't he, Jody? Praise the Lord. All right, then we'll have our gentleman. You tell him what your name is, and you give him your testimony to Christ. I'll be right here with you. I'll let you hold it if you want. Nope. My name is Bob Rose, and I'm from the mountains of southeastern Kentucky. I've lived up here for almost 60 years, and I worked for Soto Plastics in Monsanto 50 years. But I have a few things to say. Once again, my name's Bob. I'm from Neon, Kentucky. I was born into a family of people, and we were all very humble and that loving beginnings. However, I've lived in Ligonier, Indiana for almost the past 60 years. I'm retired from Monsanto Silgan Corporation, Corporation, where I was employed for 47 years. And then I went back in, 2000, in 2017, and I liked eight days making 50 years. I'm here to talk about some important dates. First day was the day I, I was married to Carol, April 24th, 1965. The days of my children's birth, two sons, Randy and Bobby. Randy was born in 1966, and Bobby was born in 1975. I have four, four grandchildren. I can tell you the dates, but I got two girls and two boys. The day I went to work, it was on November the 9th of 1955. I went to work sweeping floors, making boxes, things like that. The days I got promoted started out in labor jobs, sweeping, running machines, April the 3rd, 
I was promoted to a supervisor April of 1980. I was promoted to material specialist. In 1982, technical manager. In 1985, to department manager. In 1983, to operations manager. And from 2005 to 2012, I was a plant manager. And then, like I said, I went back in 2017 and I ran the entire operation for, well, I like eight days being 50 years. I've had some health issues. In November, my feet and knees kind of went out on me. And I had some health issues on November 14th with my feet and knees. September 15th, I broke my leg, had surgery, and was bed, bedridden for three months. Uh, and my feet basically are incurable. But importantly, the date never to be forgotten was October the 18th of 2015. That's the day that Carol and I accepted Christ. My life before Christ had, has, has some life things in it that weren't so great. I was always, I always had a high temper. I was quick to, to terminate people. Who didn't do the jobs? I was always quick to to of this anger, and it could surface in a, in an instance. It didn't help any. I drank. I have to work every day. Consequently, I didn't come home on time. And this didn't help my marriage very much. Today, looking back, I'm so thankful to my wife who loved me and then stayed with me. But God used this discontent with my anger issues and used my health issues to get my attention. I had bad feet and legs and my diabetes. During this season of poor health, there were entire days that I didn't get out of bed. I even lost my ability to fish and play golf, any kind of sports. Me and my wife, Carol, were returning home from Albion. One day and I asked Carol, I said, Carol, what do you think about accepting Christ as our Savior. She replied, Bob, everybody should do that. 
After this, I broke my leg and had surgery. One thing after led to another, and two pastors visited me. These conversations affirmed my decision to receive Christ as my Savior. Since then, I have attended church. I have been discipled. I've learned to read the Bible. I have talked to God and my heart has become super tender. Sometimes I tear up when I think of the Lord's blessings on my life, even when I was, when I didn't follow him. I'm sorry it's taken so long, but I got problems. So now, because of Christ in my life, instead of outbursts of anger, anger, temper, explosiveness, or long evenings at a bar drinking, my life has become filled with more patience and love for people in my life. I am far from per- perfect, but the, the power to change me has become a daily reality in my life. I love my wife who passed away 31 months ago. I'm far from perfect, but the fire to change has become a daily reality in my life. I love my wife more, my family more, and I want to honor Christ with all parts of my life and the rest of my life. It's just one final thought. If you're here today and you haven't accepted Christ, think about it. You can accept him. If it doesn't work, you can can go back to the other way. But I suggest you accept Christ. That's great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bob. No, no. Praise the Lord. We're thankful for life change. All right. Now, what we'll do is so you all know, as the same order that they gave their testimonies, they will come up to be baptized. So we'll put the first family on deck here, Dave. And if anybody else in our congregation wants to come up and stand with the people getting baptized as just a sign of support and love, you can start moving towards that area. Once we get going here with baptisms, it will move a little quicker. But we'll have the first family come up, and then we'll call them out one at a time to baptize them. Praise the Lord. All right, let's go, Lucas. We're excited. And you can all stand real close as you can, close as you can. Lucas, we claim you for God. You're his, a son of God. You're in Christ. Praise God. And uh, we just speak over you, his identity. And Lucas, um, we love you and your family. You live all your days for him. And this is the beginning of many great things. So in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we baptize this young man. And Lord, you fill him and strengthen him and enable him to do what you've called him to do. In Jesus' name, in the Father's name, in the Spirit's name we pray.
Okay, Cooper. Another great young man. We love you, Cooper, and we're glad for your life and your family. And we just set you apart now for the glory of God. You belong to him, and we just, our prayer is that God will give you the heart of, of David. You'll be a mighty warrior for him, a mighty poet warrior for God. So in the, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we set you apart, sir, for the King. We are so thankful. Yes. Great job. Yes. Ready to go, Liam? He's ready. He's got his quicks on. We'll let your family get there. It's a great day, isn't it, to celebrate? We just set you apart now. You belong to God. We stamp you with his image, okay? You belong to him. I am so proud of you, our family. So proud of you, Liam, for taking this step. This is the biggest step you can take, no matter what. Yes. And we are so proud of you and the man that you're becoming and the big brother that you are. And it's my honor to, to baptize you again. So I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then arise as a new creation. Yes. Yes, we do praise the Lord for a new creation. Congratulations. So good to welcome you to this place of baptism, Ellie, and our, our hope and dream for you is that Jesus will shine through you in ever clearer and brighter ways, and we just claim you for the king and the kingdom. Um, Father, in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we set Ellie apart. You fill her now and strengthen her in all resources that are needed. We pray you would dispatch to her aid, and she will be a mighty voice for truth as she lives out your values in this world. We do so in your name we pray. Praise the Lord. We are so thankful yes. for family life. Praise the Lord. All right, Miss Jody.
Thanks for leading the way among our adults today, Jody. And we appreciate you and your family and your love for the Lord. And we just speak his identity over you at this time. And Father, thank you so much for Jody. And we just thank you for her life and the smile that she shares and the kindness that she shares. And we'll talk about grace and truth this morning. And we just ask and pray that you would just bless her with grace and truth. You would just shine in her life and through her life in an amazing way. And that this baptism day would be riveted in her personal history. And this would be identification in days ahead of who she belongs to, who she serves. And we just baptize her now in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord. Life change and new beginnings. Yes. That's a great point. Bobby did great. Let's get you over here, Bob. Right here. Don't worry, the water's warm. Appreciate you, Bob. Thanks for sharing your testimony with us. One more step to go. You made it. And then if you could just turn around for me and sit on the bench, that would be awesome. God's brought you through a lot, Bob. He's, br he's br brought you through a long career. He's brought you through grief and the loss of your wife. He's brought you through multiple bouts of COVID. He's brought you through several falls and accidents. He's given you two great boys and their families. And today, this has been a long time in coming in your spiritual journey. Yes, and great friends. Yes, praise God. Appreciate them so much. And, um, and we love you. And we just speak um, God's grace and, and peace over your life and truth over your life. And uh, this is a day we're putting the flag at the top of the pole, a link in the chain. Uh, you are his, Bob. You belong to him. And so today we baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Love you, buddy. Thank God. That's it. New life, new creation, Bob. Yes. New creation. Yes. came to church this morning about 8.15. Our meeting was at 8.45. He was ready. He didn't bring one towel, he brought two. He was ready. He was going to spend some time in the baptistry. So make sure this thing is, we're going to see this through and yes. praise God we have. Yes. We have. Praise the Lord for new birth at any age. Praise the Lord. Always call on our names. That's everyone that I have now, Joey, unless anyone else wants to be baptized. Well, praise God. Praise God for what he's doing in the lives of our families and what he's doing in each of your lives. 
I don't know where you're at this morning or exactly what you're walking through, but he is your reason. He is your reason. He is your explanation. And he wants to step into your life and give you peace. And so wherever you are in your spiritual journey, take that next step. And should it be baptism, come and see me, and we'll do another one in the near future. Would you pray with me today? Father, thank you so much for this day, and thank you for your love and grace. And we just pray for each of the baptisms and their families. Thank you for um, the steps that they've taken here today. Thank you for the people that's invested in them. We think of the children's workers and youth workers. Um, We think of discipleship groups, others that have come around um, these families to see to it that they take the next uh, step in their journey of walking with you and knowing that uh, they love you and want to serve you. So you guide them here today and you direct our church and you be with us in this holiday season. And we want to honor and give you glory. And all all of this we pray in your name. Amen. All right, if you would stand with me. You have a great holiday season. And remember, um, live in grace and truth. Live in his grace and truth and see what God might do. Have a great day.